in a world where those who Marx described as capitalism's literary representatives remain afflicted by Trump derangement syndrome and continue to engage in voting fetishism, viewing non-voters as equivalent to Alexis de Tocqueville's mob. One bear and one lady are instead storming the barricades of the digital airwaves and your heart. It's Knackers and the Vag. He needs no introduction, but he does merit preamble. Gary E. Foley, Professor Doctor, is a man who has moved through decades and through institutions with the unusual force and velocity sufficient to leave him intact but them in ruins. He has been an activist of the truest and the most radical kind and now a professor of history who's also got a lot of other things going on. This is a very compressed CV. There's no LinkedIn page that could contain him. But just like that compressed CV, the compressed information available to most people these days, and you'd think that the internet would give us more and not less, you might not have heard of Professor Gary Foley. Well, I'm about to fucking correct that. Well, Gary Foley's about to correct that. This podcast, Knackers in the Vag, is recorded on the glorious morn when everything changes. Liberal democracy has reasserted itself and, oh, Gary, I'm sure that you will join me in acknowledging that Anthony Albanese is Australia's first Prime Minister who represents a marginalised community, much like you do. He is the first openly fucking little dobber to be a Prime Minister in Australian history. Um, hello, Helen. <laughs> do, no, do you look at Albo? Albo, because that's his cool name. I try not to look at yeah, Albo, no. but... Isn't he, like, just the sort of guy who, who dob? That's one of many things he looks like. And he sounds like a dobber, even in public speech. It's like, oh, the Honourable Member from Whoopsie Doodle... I reckon that he's gone to the loo without getting a pass from teacher. This is the vibe that I get from him. I mean, you, I'm sure, as a, a proper historian, aren't much into doing psychological readings of different leaders because you know that history's fucking a lot bigger than the fuckwits who inhabit it most prominently. But what do you reckon? I mean, he's really not statesmanlike, is he? I prefer at this moment in history to accentuate the positive and the, the, there's at least one positive in all of this. We no longer have SCOMO. You mean SCOMO, the inadequate marketing manager who I'm sure I've probably bored you with this detail before but I'm going to do it again because I love it. He was famously responsible for Australia's most quantifiably disastrous tourism campaign. Indeed he was. 5% measurable drop in tourism for the where the bloody hell are you campaign. Get this, original AF, as the young people would say, it was the gorgeous lady on a beach 
in a bikini. She was all of 18, uh, Laura, Lara, I can't remember. Very gorgeous girl, of course, in a little bikini. Sort of person that you uh, might find doing some performance art with uh, your good friend and collaborator, Richard Bell. I think I may have met uh, Lara somewhere along the track. And I'm look, I'm sure she's very nice. But you're right about the campaign. I mean, you know. <laughs> it's like no one's here. This is what happens when you've got Scotty from marketing. Yeah, no, no one's here but this perky little white virgin on the beach. Come and colonise my vagina. I mean, like, it just doesn't work. And also the word bloody, well, in Canada is actually relatively offensive. Anyway, it was just a shit ad. Um, he's got a, a history of being a really, like, mediocre marketing manager. And a happy clapper to boot. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. The outgoing Prime Minister of Australia, Scummo, as he is lovingly described by his most ardent fans being Professor Gary Foley and myself, the fundy in America, right, like you don't like it but you can kind of put it in context. They grow up around it. Americans are very enthusiastic, effusive. Australians tend to terse speech, except for me. I'm not representative of this nation that I did not vote in, by the way. Uh, we'll get back to the matter of voting. But to be a fundy, you know, like a real evangelical, I feel the Holy Spirit in all parts of my body, it's not really endorsed in the wider community. Like some Americans just kind of like have to be that kind of thing. They grew up with it. They see it on the telly. You've got to be trying really hard to be that much of a rat bag that you go to one of those churches, don't you? I don't think the people who run them churches worry about that much. They seem to live a life of great luxury as a consequence of uh, the gullibility of so many contributing to so few. Yes, and with their lovely tax-free status. But, I mean, you know, in everybody's extended family, there's usually you know, one person who has gone over to what the family considers the dark side and they tithe 10% of their wages at places like Hillsong. And I just don't get, because it's just not a thing that one would associate with the culture of the past in this country. So what I'm saying is like scummo is abnormal. Like it is a weird thing. Let's go back to the positives. Yep. Another positive that okay. came out of the election yesterday, I think, is that unlike recent elections in so many other parts of the world where extreme right-wing uh, uh, groups have gained ascendancy, that didn't happen here. Um, this time the... Australian voters have deserted both of the major political parties, not necessarily running off to the ultra-right to the extent that's been seen in other places. Well, so, yeah, particularly Europe. I, I mean, mean, that's at least a momentary great relief for some of us in Australia because the direction that so many you know, other countries, including America, including especially America, are going politically things 
are looking very grim. The last time they looked like this was in 1930s in Germany. Professor Gary Foley is pretending that he's optimistic about the future. Don't you worry. The optimism of his will will soon be eclipsed by the pessimism of his higher intellect. And the pessimism that comes with knowing that uh, no matter what happens in the next five to ten years, I ain't necessarily going to be here to see it. So you, you've been saying that. For I as don't long, have to worry. You've been saying that for as long as I've known you, and you're actually not allowed to die for fifteen years. It, it, that's the consensus on the broad left in Australia. Gary Foley is not permitted to perish. His brain, at least, must be kept alive, and you know. You want to stay around to say say a bit and also, I guess, enjoy the fact that many of your predictions as a historian were true. More satisfying to me is the knowledge that uh, the generation of young teachers whom Tony Birch and I taught at Melbourne Uni are now out there in history departments all over Victoria teaching uh, this sort of stuff and in the sort of way we taught them. And um, I know that even if I drop dead tomorrow, there's a whole generation of other young mob out there who are taking up the challenge to, you know, help create that better Australia that I taught them that could be possible. And the, that better Australia would, of course, That's be my optimistic n- moment, non-Australia. folks. Uh, there is always optimism. I mean, the famous Gramscian formulation, optimism of the will, and if you don't have it, give up or get some therapy. Uh, triumph of the will, one might say. No, not <laughs> triumph of the will, but yeah, perhaps, uh, perhaps not that phrase. Uh, but it, but no, no, it's a good instruction for for life to remain in any way engaged with the broader society, with the fact of human life not at all flourishing across the the greater world. If this concerns you, the attitude to take probably cannot be learned at a Pilates course or through transcendental meditation. The best advice I've ever heard is to retain the optimism of the will that you must necessarily have if you give a shit. Fuck misanthropes. I've got no time for them. If you think humanity is bad, well, there's no hope for you in any struggle. Would you agree? I agree in the sense that I I see hope in the election results yesterday in that it appears at this stage, and this is very early in the analysis, but it appears at this stage that there is um, significant far greater concern out there in the broader community about climate yeah, and, you know, the, the future of the earth, which is um, a significantly positive sign, I, I think. You know, again, like I said, compared to the political direction that's being headed in other Western countries, there's positive signs, I think, that Australia's a, a bit, uh, more sane community than what we're seeing in places like Germany and Hungary and, for that matter, Russia and America. Yeah, I mean, these are very different circumstances in all of those nations that you mentioned with the possible but exception. But the elements are with the there possible in, exception in Australia of the Ru- for it to 
to be like that, you know? The elements are there, but the history of Nazism, you know, is not so embedded. I do, as you know, live in the Bagel Belt, and it wasn't too long ago that I saw a, a swastika on the kindergarten adjacent to a synagogue. You know, there are a few of them, and it is curious because they have all inherited the, you know, there's a triage with their racism, right? And at the very top, the, the, their true hatred is reserved for the Jew. And there is evidence that this still exists in Australia. And I'm sure you've stood face to face with the, say, 100 active Nazis in Australia who proudly call themselves Nazis. Like, uh, Yeah, but, it, but I would argue that what we're seeing today both here and overseas is a much more volatile situation. I mean, I I remember the skull and the, the bunch of mugs who hung around with him back in the late 60s and early 70s and they were a disorganised rabble. Mm. This new brand, this new version, and it's not just Nazis, it's um, a whole gaggle of people who assemble on the right there have the benefit these days of the internet and the communication possibilities and organising capabilities and possibilities exist these days from a far better than they ever were. And I would also argue that, um, you know, whereas it, in America people are starting to now question the role of Rupert Murdoch and Fox News in, in some of the events that have been going on in America in recent times, I, I mean, look, I, I think that... Can that, I, that can the, I honestly say, when, though, when you consider that... I, I there, to... Let me finish. When you consider that the majority of tabloids in Australia are controlled by Murdoch and the, the lines that they push and the, the sort of Tucker Carlson-type arguments that you see expressed by, you know, the, the journalists who work for News Corp in Australia, you can't tell me that that isn't having playing some sort of uh, a role in nurturing Gary, and encouraging Gary, these right-wing lunatics. I know very personally about the psychological stew it can make of the human mind. I do. My father and I have been estranged by Sky News. He is now, uh, well, he doesn't like the term climate denier but he is pretty sure it's all a bit of a hoax and that the uh, CO2 will uh, just be good for plant growth. I did mention that a lot of deforestation had been going on, but in addition to that, he's just become a prick. Um, (laughs) Like he's just become a real old prick and uh, has developed ideas or semi-ideas that he has not had hitherto. Now, it is true Uh, that the audience of the Murdoch publications are moribund. They are an older audience. They're a redundant form of communications anyway these days. Most people don't get their news from those newspapers. I would just like to challenge the idea, though, of appointing all of the blame for all of the psychological havoc that has been wreaked too squarely at Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch's... Not 
a portion of it to him exclusively. He is nevertheless, his publications are nevertheless a significant factor. Okay, sure. But Rupert Murdoch's interests go far beyond that. He is the majority shareholder of Disney, purveyor of, well, the musical Hamilton, for example, inspiring feminist cartoons for independent princesses and what have you. You know and you absolutely know that Murdoch's interest is the Murdoch family, the Murdoch legacy and the Murdoch's retaining as much power and as having as much control as they can. And they will do that in whatever way works. That's what I'm saying. Murdoch has previously endorsed Labor. He has previously, and I think some delusion. The last time he endorsed Labor was when Whitlam uh, 1972 federal election. That was the last time. Three years later, he's uh, he's working in collusion with others to undermine and destroy the Whitlam Yeah, government. I mean, we can complain about Murdoch yeah. all we like, Murdoch, right? Murdoch began his career, don't forget, with the famous Rupert Max Stewart case. It was him who saved yeah. Rupert Max Stewart from can being... You, can you tell... This was a... A, a famous... A, a black a, a Australian man falsely accused of homicide. That's right. And Murdoch, um, the first campaign he ever ran that actually saved Rupert Max Stewart, who I later met in later life when he got out of jail. I believe that this but, was... So he was... And a, also his Australian newspaper in its earliest manifestation was a strong and staunch supporter of Aboriginal land rights. But, you know, he very quickly um, realised that, you It know, doesn't sell papers. Power... Power lies in other directions. Yeah. I mean, there's a very limited way in any corporate press or mainstream press in Australia, there is a very limited range of Aboriginality that you can inhabit, right? You can be this or you can be that. So I would say that absence, condescension, that the other newspapers, you know, no one's reading newspapers anyway, but the other commentaries, the other online mastheads and the other famous writers. I mean, there's as much harm, I think, in Albanese, oh, so generously saying that he would accept the Uluru statement from the heart as though this were a great significant moment of history and remembering the title of the land that he was on and elders past, present, emerging, all that, you know, acknowledgement. And I can say this to you because you told it to me. Shit. It's tokenism. Well, I mean, it's more than tokenism. It's a concealment of the fact that there is no fucking stated policy to do anything. Constitutional recognition? Look, sure, I don't mind, but fuck me. What else is offered? So you can talk about Murdoch. But, I mean, it's just one particular kind of danger. And, sorry, this is a this may be of interest to you or, or it may not. There is a great deal of rancour justifiably for Murdoch in this nation where the Murdochs come from. And fucking Dame Elizabeth Murdoch, why do people even, you know, love her? People were crying when she died. <laughs> Keith was a prick. Keith got communists beaten and thrown in jail. 
I mean, he learnt this shit from somewhere. But at the same time, look at Nine Facts. Look at the ABC. Where to look that delivers you anything less than a very narrow version. There are two sides to politics in the opinion of, of, of mainstream media and they are people who are fiscally responsible and out and out racist and people who are fiscally responsible and use the correct language, you know? But, I mean, you know, even looking at the ABC and Murdoch, I look at the ABC these days and I see a dozen or more people who come out of the Murdoch media. I mean, the Murdoch media carry on all the time, especially Jared Henderson, about the left-wing bias in the ABC. I look at the ABC nowadays and I see um, right-wing bias from people who learnt their craft in Murdoch tabloids, for crying out loud. Patricia Cavallis, for example, was one of the people from the Australian who harangued the scholar, the senior civil servant, uh, the, you can probably describe what Larissa Berent does better than me. She seems to have an awful lot of jobs and responsibility. She harangued Larissa Berent during the time of the Andrew Bolt kerfuffle where he had, I think, questioned her right to identify herself as a, an Aboriginal person. And throughout that, Cavellas was she fucking looked at everybody's Twitter and did unnecessary shit. Oh, now she's on the ABC, elders past and present. And that sudden shift is a concealment of, like, just not giving a fuck. And you probably have people in your life who's who've had kind of like Murdoch-induced dementia, right? But why the fuck... Is there all this, like, political will to do something about Murdoch but no one's doing anything? You want to fuck Murdoch, go to the ASX, call the ACCC. The things that he has done in the Australian Stock Exchange are obscene. He fucking owns it. Talk to the shareholders that don't have voting rights. There are many ways that you can diminish, I'm not talking to you, obviously, doll, Murdoch's power, right? And an advertising boycott? Are you an idiot? Yes, you are. Do you think that Murdoch or fucking anyone makes their revenue from the little piddling amount of advertising they have on their digital properties? No, it's a fucking corporation and it's now an enormous corporation and you are an enormous fool if you think that getting on Facebook and having a fucking tantrum about Murdoch creates racism and sexism when A, so does everyone fucking else in the media and B, there are things that you can do. There are angry news or Fox or whatever it's called now, he keeps changing the corporate structure, shareholders who have the second tier non-voting shares. They are really shitty at AGMs instrumentalize them. Call Stephen Main. There's these weird people called shareholder activists. There are ways that you can fuck him, but you don't want to fuck him just like you 
have no idea what to do after Trump left. Now settle down. Yeah, but settle you down, know Helen. I'm okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean, right? Like the the liberal left were having a four-year orgasm when Trump was in administration, right? It was like, oh, this is just like the worst president in history. And now they, you know, like what the fuck are they going to do without Trump? Like what's there to complain about now? So I'm just saying demonising just one small portion of all I media. All I said was that Murdoch's publications in Australia do play a significant role in enabling many of these lunatic fringe white-wing groups that are out there. His publications give them what they perceive to be a level of mainstream credibility. Yeah, sure. I mean, I agree, don't like them, I despise, etc., etc. What but, I want to know is... But, I mean, media is not that simple, right? What does Jerry Hall say in him? Is it just the money? Oh, you know what? I love her. Do you love her? Well, she's a pretty class act, you know. But the thing I love about her. Going with the money, (laughs) going with the power. Yeah, but I mean. Going with the relatively good singers. She's a a class act, but also, you know, she's actually a Texan who wasn't (laughs) brought up with much. And I've heard her speak at times and she's very funny. This is probably not very feminist of me to say, but she says, my mama always said that, you know, five minutes on your knees every day pays all the bills and brings all the jewels. She is like, I think, the queen of of kept women and she's still gorgeous. Do you remember her in all the old Roxy music video clips? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, she's gorgeous. Ron Ferry. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a bit of a jump, you know, over the years from uh, Mick Jagger's missus to Rupee, although, you know, I've got my suspicions about Mick's politics too. You know he went to the London School of Economics. Yes. Oh, absolutely irrelevant. What are your feelings on the stones? I spent a lot of my youth stoned with the stones on the record player. That's probably... A term that's alien to young, the younger folk in your audience, the record player, I won't get, explain what it is. Oh, no, the hipsters, the hipsters, the hipsters know. They buy them on Etsy. But, I, I mean, I will say that Sticky Fingers does sound better on vinyl. I've got absolutely no scientific rationale for it. I like the live one, get your ya yeah, out. Yeah, get your ya-yas out. I like, you know, Black and Blue, I reckon, was their last amazing album. But they had a good solid seven years of being a fucking great rock and roll band. And also of all of the, you know, white boys who ripped off black music, they were the ones who actually acknowledged it. Like, yeah, sure, they could have done more, but I quite like that about them, you know? Um, I, I've always liked Keith. Oh, um, and it's my role model. But it's also also a bit funny sometimes. On YouTube there are clips of uh, him doing um, gigs early in the piece when he first met when he's got people hair. like Chuck Berry and some of them other old blues blokes and Keith there jamming with them but looking very awkward Yeah, I mean, I in think the early phases. I, I, I believe that he was paying homage 
you know. Absolutely. He was very, Absolutely. very but, respectful, unlike, say, Led but Zeppelin. As you, know? you would, as you would, if you were, you know, some up-and-coming young white boy, you know, uh, playing the blues in England and then you come to America and you meet these guys, inevitably you're going to feel awkward in your first sessions and and Chuck Berry was the sort of bloke who'd make you feel awkward anyway. But I think that Keith is a true artist, that he, you know, did pay homage, he did want to learn. But if you compare that to somebody like Jimmy Page, I mean, they ripped off Robert Johnson, Holus Bolus, you know, never never played a thing and never had any connection with the, 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 the America's black community yeah. of, of musicians. And so... I think that Keith was genuinely starstruck, would still be genuinely starstruck. And no, not every young bloke would do that. You know what young blokes are like, especially young white blokes. It's like, oh, you're lucky to have me rip you off kind of thing. So I like Keith and he just looks fantastic, doesn't he? He's a beautiful Well, I wreck. mean, you've got to be that rich to have teeth that good that late in life. I mean, they're a lot different than when he was young. Yeah, I love the fact that his teeth are good but the rest of him is an absolute kind of like beauty of decrepitude. Yeah, but and and yes, and with his new teeth, he tends to smile a lot more these days. Yeah. I'll, and he's cool, you know. I mean, you Oh, know. my God, is he cool? Like, I mean, he's, the he's definition so cool of- that I, it's kind of uncool to say it, right? And now there's a bloke who's not allowed to die. He's not going to anyway. I'll die before he does. Yeah, I mean, I suspect he's actually undead. You know, he's like a zombie who lives among us. Yes, he's already died. He's yeah. got to have died. I can remember, you know, at least a dozen occasions on which he probably died. Yeah, and there's those great rumours about, you know, Keith goes and ha- uh, to a Swiss spa where he has his blood changed. Yeah, and well, I, mean, I don't think that that was true, but it was... I think it... I, I believe it. <laughs> like, you know, I like... Uh, I despise the parliamentary system, uh, liberal democracy, even the idea of the the nation state, fuck Australia, uh, internationalism and indeed a race or borders. Having said that, Keith Richards uh, for Prime Minister, I think that that would, you know, renew my faith in uh, uh, this shitty democracy. Well, he'd certainly liven it up, that's for sure. Yeah. You know. no, no, no. Oh, in fact, I, I think I, I would think you're onto something there before. I think he is dead, and I think that all that we've got now is a hologram, and he's it's just moving around. No, it's more traditional. He's he's um you know like the Haitian Walking Dead. He a is, zombie. He is undead. Yeah, yeah. But like but he's a, a a zombie who can still play the guitar. Well, indeed, he's channeling uh, Robert Johnson, isn't he? I'm getting the feeling that you were actually a little bit of a Stones fan and considering that you, you know, have a genuine love for and encyclopedic knowledge of true country and sometimes Western music. Like, I, I know a bit about country and Western. Yeah, but, the, I mean, there are strong elements of that influence that came later and there's also the attitude. I mean, inevitably I've got to attribute my like and the Stones to Bruce McGuinness, my great mentor, who I came down to Melbourne to be around because I thought I could learn something from him back in 1972. And is Get Your Yo-Yos out actually your favourite album? 
Bruce McGuinness and I used to do a lot of travel and driving yeah. between Sydney and Melbourne and Sydney and uh, Melbourne and Canberra in his great dirty great white uh, Fairlane back oh in God. the day. He had a cassette player in the car. Now heaven. there's another heaven. There's another technical item that the younger folk may not be familiar with. Um, but, uh, Gary, a, I'm, I'm just upset. Not a that cassette. Uh, eight track. You, you had an eight track. Yeah, that's that's. You it. had an eight track. This is fucking yes. brilliant. <laughs> and we used to listen to get your yayas out on the road on the Hume Highway before it was the big freeway thing it is now. I guess it was most the, of it was one lane in them days. The eight track cartridge uh, sound reproduction technology that was chiefly used in cars and didn't last mm. that long. That's you know? right. It's you know within no time the the tapes you went and bought yeah. were sort of redundant. Yeah, it was sort of like you know if you're old enough to remember DAT recorders, for example, and they you know they went the way of all things. But you know the eight track. You probably know this, like the eight the eight track in a Ford Fairlane, and these two blokes listening to the Stones is and and Stone as well. You know? Oh yeah, like massive numbers were rolled. This is actually almost up to the level. Okay, no, I'm going to say equal to the level of Keith Richards' call. I achieved professorship in Roland. Rolling numbers um, way back in about 1973, 72. Do you do racehorse ones or are they multi-paper? Multi-paper, of course. Yes. I have very poor fine motor skills uh, and gross motor skills and um, poor eyesight, so I never really learned. Also, I can't do pot. Makes me mad. Makes me, like, paranoid. But That's what it does to one of my close relatives. Uh, it's not uncommon. That's right. But, you know, um, if that happens to you, you just got to not do it. Yes. That's all. Un- know, as un- simple as that. Unfortunately, Gary, some of us are genetically impaired and we, we don't have the THC receptors that work. No, uh, I understand that. Like if you, you know, if you do panic a lot, like, and pop makes it worse, like, Seriously, I'm not talking to you, guys. No, no, I, you know, I, I've experienced you know how that. To take I've experienced drugs. that when, on occasions when somebody's hit me with something that was a lot stronger than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's one of the occupational hazards if you're into that sort of. Of course, I'm now a professor of history, and I don't do that sort of stuff anymore. Oh gosh, no, no, you've you've cleaned up your act, and uh, indeed. Here on Knackers in the Vag, uh, we would apparently prefer to talk about the Rolling Stones in their peak period of 1968 to 1975 when they just fucking rocked. I, I saw them. Oh, no, where, when did you see them? When? I'm trying to remember whether it was at Kooyong because I saw Dylan at Kooyong when he had um, Tom Petty back, band backing him. Uh, the Heartbreakers? But, yeah, that tour that he did out here, that was Dylan. How was that? That was a lot better than the more recent one. Oh, my God, did you go too? I went to the more recent one with Stephen Cummings, in fact. And mm. I, I went with my uh, now past friend from, from the old lung cancer, Duncan. I don't know if you ever met Duncan. Uh, it, maybe if you're a Sydney and, you know, into the alternative rock and roll music or uh, Americana, uh, you would have known him from um, Max's Peter Chamin. He booked all the bands. He was a uh-huh. fucking good bloke. Knew his music. Anyway, 
Yeah, I went with Duncan. Neither of us were that impressed. It was boring as shit. The latest one, what, I mean, you know, when he came out with Petty and the Heartbreakers, I mean, I'm glad what I saw this? that one. What oh, year? It's in the 70s sometime. Oh, I 70s. can't remember. So 70s, Dylan. Yeah. Okay, that probably would have been good. I've got to say, like, I mean, you've got to – Dylan is one of those artists, I reckon, that if you, he doesn't get in your brain when you're kind of like a teenager, you'll never get it. Do you know what I mean? Like there's some artists very much like that. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that. But, see, I heard him in the 60s when I was about 14 or something. Yeah, it would have been amazing. And I've been with him ever since. I still reckon. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 mean, I understand. You know, I understand. And I mean, there's such a body of work there. I just, there's no point in me even beginning to talk no. about. It. But how about this as a connection to take us back to country and western music? We all know that um, Dylan was uh, inspired by Woody Guthrie. He wrote that song, "Song to Woody." Uh, we are but, all inspired by Woody but Guthrie. I argue. As a historian now, in my historian mode, uh, shifting out of, out of these, qualified, some um, of these other modes. Very, very qualified. But wait there, well, he, well, he, uh, his PhD that, of course, came before his professorship, won the university medal at arguably Australia's most esteemed university, the University of Melbourne. The University of Melbourne, yes. That still, anyway, that still gave you the me, university don't, don't medal. Don't let me lose this track. Um, so I argue, as a historian, that the Australian equivalent to Woody Guthrie yes. is a guy who I heard first heard an old tape recording of him singing. This is a guy called Dougie Young. Yeah, he was a white bloke or black knockabout or? black fella in northern New South Wales in the nineteen sixties, uh, and he wrote songs about life. In the fringe camps, the the camps that were operating outside of the apartheid system in New South Wales, he wrote songs about you know songs like like Victor Potom and his rusty hut. One of his famous songs was uh, "Pass Him the Flagon Boys." Now, if you ever see Backroads, the movie that I made with Phil Noyce. Oh, my God. The opening uh, uh, can, song. Can I just say, you, the should, you opening, should see Backroads. It's the a, opening. It's a, it's the, a fucking let, chaos. Let it's me great. finish. The opening scene in Backroads is a, a black fella from Burke Reserve, on Burke Reserve, singing that Dougie Young song. And most of the music in the film Backroads is Dougie Young music because uh, where we filmed Backroads in Burke and Brewarren. I'm, I'm sorry, we should just mention um, Gary Foley has um, occasion to act and there have been some notable... Pretend to act, you know. There have been it some... It's always an act, uh, me uh, pretending to Notable act. and, in fact, uh, widely viewed performances. I believe that the Australian Centre for the Moving Image or or someone should have a festival of Foley because, my fucking God, he's if, done some weird things on screen, now, in, Helen, including being... Uh, Helen, stop for a moment. If you go to Acme Today, anybody who's listening, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image in Melbourne at Federation Square, if you go in there now, their current exhibition features precisely what Helen was 
trying to tell us ACME should do. So go and check it out, folks. But anyway, no, getting, but then, ba- getting no, back then, to Backrose. There needs to be a festival of Foley. Getting back to Backrose. Especially dogs I'm talking in about Dougie Young, right? Okay, so, so Dougie no, just, Young, just, just, just tell, let, me, tell let, me who the director of Backroads let was. Phil tell. Noyce. Yeah. I made Phil Noyce famous. And I you believe know? he went on to Phil direct Noyce's the first, Truman Show. The first feature film that Phil Noyce made was Backroads with me. The second film he made and? won every award in the country, a film called Newsfront, which uh, starred Billy Hunter and uh, Chris Hayward. And um, Noyce went on to direct all sorts of American cultural imperialist rubbish like oh, yeah. Patriot Games uh, and stuff like that and now lives in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Backrose was his very first film. And your co-star was? Billy Hunter. Billy Hunter, who is no longer with us. Billy Hunter was one of the best actors in Australia. So too was Chris Hayward, who who was in um, Newsfront with Billy. Chris Hayward, in fact, worked on as a part of the crew on the original Basically Black, the first ever all-Aboriginal theatre production at the Nimrod Theatre in 1972, which me and Bob Mazur and Bindi Williams and Zach Martin and Aileen Corpus we were the National Black Theatre. A very um, short-lived television that was, show. That was, well, uh, ABC TV come to us and said that they wanted to do a series based on on basically Black the Stage Show and when we did our f- pilot uh, episode, <laughs> that was the end of that, you know. The ABC got scared and did not touch Aboriginal comedy, black comedy again for... Forty years, folks. That's how. I mean, it's, that's how solid a show basically black. Yeah, was, it's huge. Know? It's hugely offensive uh, and funny, um, which are two things, in my view, that are in good company. You know, peanut butter and chocolate, peaches and cream, gin and tonic, offence and laughs. They just what, go together. So, but what most people don't know about basically black, that first political satirical show that we did. It was partly inspired by Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers, and um, oh, it was very Harry Seacombe. It was and very oh, wait, goons. Wait, very and goons. also, it was also inspired by Phantom Comics. There's a scene in basically yes, you Black have a superhero. that is that is literally plucked and adapted and adopted from a Phantom comic. So, th- so there you go. You were very, as ever, before your time. This precedes the Marvel comic universe. We preceded Monty Python and we were just as good well, as them. Well, you didn't actually in terms of actual historical We actually years. did. All right. We actually did. All right. I believe that I the was fly- alive then. I you believe weren't. that the Flying Circus was by then on television. However, it was not. You were not alive then. I was. Uh, you can't argue with a professor of history. <laughs> uh, no, one cannot. I concede to your wisdom about everything, Gary Foley, she said, with um, absolutely. With one eye on the computer sense. checking whether she's right or I'm not. Uh, no, actually, I'm sorry. I just wish to correct myself. Uh, Philip Noyce was one of a yeah, rather large group of uh, Australians who cut their teeth as directors uh, of Australian film at a time. In the so-called new wave of Australian uh, uh, cinema uh, in the early 70s. Yeah. People and, like and Tim Burstall, Peter Weir. I'm trying, you to, know, all I'm of trying these. to be a good host of you, dear guest, 
and explain the historical context of all of the wonder that you have created. I can explain it better. I can explain it better by saying that all of those directors that you are talking about, all of them, including Noyce, felt compelled to make their Aboriginal film. You know, Peter Weir made The Last Wave. What's his name? Oh, it's a white Australian compulsion. Every white Australian has to have their big Aboriginal moment. Baz Luhrmann, Australia, you know, and it continues, you know, and it's it's uh, one of the negative aspects of the Australian film industry. uh, Noyce went on to do Rabbit Proof Fence, which is widely regarded as a marvellous film. I didn't didn't think much of it myself. the, The woman who wrote the book wanted Noyce to make the film because she'd seen Backroads and she thought that he had uh, been the most sensitive Australian director in terms of handling an Aboriginal story. That's how come Noyce made Rabbit Proof Fence. But I want to say, and this is important. We've got to get back to the election. This is important. This is important. I want to say that Noyce remains uh, a close friend of mine and I'm, in fact, godfather of his um, daughter, Lucia. So, good on you, Phil. I didn't say anything bad about you yet, mate. <laughs> uh, yes, you are entrusted uh, with the spiritual care of a child. Unfortunately, a privilege. She's no longer a child. She's now a gun lawyer. Unfortunately, a privilege that has never been extended to me. I keep offering my services as godmother. I was christened a Catholic. I have taken Holy Communion. I'm available. I don't care how <laughs> shitty your kid is. I want to be a fucking godmother. Anyhow. Next question. Just want to make a point about backroads that doesn't necessarily involve the film itself. One of the reasons that a film like Backroads was made and a career like Noises was made was at the time there was to encourage an Australian film industry there was a big tax break for making a film. I think it was the, like the 10BA tax exemption. Yep, and there was and, the Australian Film and Television School as well. Uh, I think after still exists, but now there's the Film Finance Corporation. Well, Noyce and a uh, few the, of them directors were a product of that, but go so, on. So pretend we're in a history class. The point that I'm making is that things don't come from nowhere. Hmm. There has to be a material, a legal and institutional push for these things to happen. Like there was a time, an accidental time in, in your extreme youth where And you can attribute it to possible. one word, Whitlam. Uh, Whitlam allowed it. I believe that Fraser he didn't allow continued it. the 10 he, he created the this possibility, is, but go on. The point that I was making is that uh, different uh, eras, different decades even, a period of five years, things can shift there are possibilities open in the past that can inform the present. History is not just some shit that happened. History is now. We're making history by doing this. Uh, well, This it, will be trawled through by future historians, this particular podcast, trying to figure by, out. By an extraterrestrial scholar um, <laughs> who, who has decided to examine the rare case of legitimate friendships that occur between white and black persons in Australia. Completely unexpected and illogical and yet here we are. You know when you said you'd let me write your biography, 
10 years ago. Oh, did I say that? Yes, I oh, did, didn't I? Oh, for fuck's yeah. sake. And you keep me hanging on and, you know, it's not going to happen. But look, we, we continue to pretend that I'm Gary Fo- Well, I continue to pretend that I'm Gary Foley's biographer and I introduce myself as such. So I pitched the book, got, you know, got an offer. Wasn't bad, actually. And, uh, yeah, Gary said, nah, not ready. I haven't finished yet. And yeah, my, but you, when you're dead, cast. I'll have to, you know, unless you know a very good medium, um, it's going to be difficult to, to interview you. Those photographs of you in the 1970s, you, you should sell them to like a that jeans was, company. That I mean, was 50 years ago. Yeah, but I mean, you look like a model. It's ridiculous. Not everybody does that, you know. They look like a jeans model for most of their life and then they go immediately to Silver Fox. No, well, it's not fair. If you could give me the name of your cosmetic surgeon, I would be grateful. Here on Knackers in the Vag, we are talking to skincare influencer Gary Foley, a man who practices wellness hobbies that we should all follow. One of them is unmitigated rage. Another is not voting in the Australian election. Now, this may cause you offence. You might think, well, this is my one chance, my one triennial, almost triennial chance to, to have a voice. Have a voice. And, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, other people vote. Uh, perhaps. Other perhaps, people choose not to vote. Perhaps um, I could explain. Yes, I'm trying I don't, to give. I don't vote. I'm trying to be professional, Foley. I mean, sir. Well, I'm just cutting you off halfway through the question. The reason I don't vote in the Australian election is because I am not an Australian. I do not consider myself an Australian. I am a member of the Gumbanja Nation. We have never ceded our sovereignty. And so why should I participate in an electoral process in a foreign country? That's why I don't vote. I've never voted in my life. I've been waiting for 72 years for the Australian Electorate Commission to try and uh, have a go at me or find me. I'm waiting for them to do that because I'll be quite happy to say, listen, I'll pay you a fine. I don't give a shit. It's got nothing to do with me. As long as I don't have to, don't ever have to vote, I don't want to participate. It's not my country. It's not my problem. I cannot claim precisely the same reasons for my first ever failure to vote in the federal election. It is your first ever failure. Yeah, you know, I, I was always I a bit I can understand. Of, look, I was always a bit of a brownie guide about it, you know, and I used they're to. They're going to come for you. You know, and do you know what happened to me, right? I have an argument prepared. I am a person with an ongoing mental disorder, major depressive disorder, subtype agitated, which means I'm very fearful all the time or most of the time. And I felt that going to the polling booth, I was almost certain would trigger a dangerous panic attack. So uh, I will explain that. To the AEC. Isn't that a sort of, and excuse me for saying this, but isn't that a sort of a cop out? No, it's not wouldn't a cop it, out. Wouldn't it, it be true. Better, wouldn't it be better to go to them and say, the truth is, 
I don't believe in your fucking political well, system. Well, that was the and reason. And you can go and get fucked and find me and I don't care and I'll pay the fine but and you, big deal but and I, fuck I, off. No, but I, I wish to make my case. I, I Sure, I'll pay the fine, but I wish to make my case that I am actually so sickened by the decrepit organs that form the nation state Australia and its partnering economy that That's I, a convoluted way of saying No, it's fuck not. Off. I'm saying you just like having a go at me. A minute ago you were saying it's a cop out. You've got to explain your reasons explicitly for refusing to participate yeah, in tell them to fuck nationhood. Off. No, I don't just tell people to fuck off. I then give them a lecture as you do. <laughs> I must tell them why why they must fuck off. I I will All right, uh, fair enough. I will crowdfund the $83. But, I mean, I understand your political position and your your failure to vote, right? Um, My refusal, not failure. Okay. I'm sorry. Yes, I used completely the wrong term there. I shall be punished in time by Gary Foley, as I have been punished for the last 10 years. (laughs) Can you imagine what it's like? You have a meeting with a person whom you have admired from afar for quite some time. Me to you, it must be you said. You did not. You said you thought I was a dickhead before you met me. Well, right. The, when you were on radio. What the fuck were you doing <laughs> listening to me on the radio? That's actually a good question. No, I used I. I Why li- were you listening to me on the radio if you didn't like me? Because you made me angry. And I didn't understand. Why? I didn't understand why the. Because we're. Then- both assholes. We, exactly. Know. I didn't realise that at the time. I've got unwarranted self-esteem and so do you. Yes. I mean. No, but, no. Whoa. Okay, yours is it, warranted. I think it's. I think yours is warranted. No. I do believe that, you know. Look at it. Sorry, folks, it's getting no, I mean, maudlin now. But no, no, time no, for is. a country and western but song. I mean, I time mean, for a George Jones song. Well, you know, self-esteem is just like it doesn't actually have to be something that you deserve. Um, a- a- arrogance, like false arrogance, you know, that's a different thing. Self-esteem, it just you either, I think, uh, it, I guess it can be gained through exercise, therapeutic technique, but I've just always had it and it really annoys people. I think it's really important to have that self-confidence in what you're on about and what you believe. Yeah, I know, you but know? I mean... And even if other people think it's crazy or you're fucking crazy, it's important to at least believe in yourself. If you don't have that self-belief, you go down, you know, and you become a, you become a fucking victim instead of... Um, Becoming, you know, I think it's part someone of, who's strong and it. I mean, of course, it's formed in early life. Um, if you have a childhood reasonably free of trauma and reasonably stocked with goodies um, such as you know food and lodging, you've got a much better chance of having it. And then maybe it's the luck of the draw. Your childhood by accident, which we've spoken about briefly before. Your extreme childhood, not shit. You had fucking nice parents by the sound of it. You were one of like maybe two or three black I was lucky, families. Mate. but I was one of only 12 Aboriginal kids in New South Wales who sat for the 1964 school certificate, you know. So I was extremely 
lucky, I think, nowadays, now that I reflect on it. Yeah. I mean, you did have a shit time when you went to Nambucca. Yeah, but, you know. But early. I got over that. That, that also um, uh, helped form some of the things I still think today, you know. There has really been a time in your, in your life where you have questioned your capacity for thought. I mean, I know you did go, I, you must have had a little crisis because you did go to university, which I don't think you needed <laughs> to do. Um, no, but, it was but that because was a- I was provoked. I was provoked by a certain um, senior academic historian at the University of Melbourne who shall remain nameless. Which one? She shall remain nameless. Allegedly. She, and one of the things that hurt me about was the fact that I was aware when uh, this person told me that, they well insinuated to me that somehow or other I was somehow a lesser person because I didn't have that little bit of paper from university. I had no university credential. Such a ridiculous assertion. But, you know, one of the things that really upset me about the person who said that to me, um, and I've got to be careful now. Uh, oh, was it you had some friendship it, or? Well, I, I knew I knew her and I knew of her and I knew that she had been a pioneer woman historian and I was aware of the shit that she'd been put through in her battle to sort of gain recognition as an academic historian as a woman in the days when, you know. Well, was, you know, and, you, and you, you know well, as well me as finish, me that just because somebody's experienced finish, oppression finish, doesn't mean they're. Let me finish. And so it. Judith Brett? I may well know that, but it still hurt me to know that she did to me precisely what had been done to her. Again, terms, not and, unusual. But anyway, it worked out good because. I said to her, okay, I'll come and get your Mickey Mouse little bit of paper. It mustn't be too difficult. you are got one. And so three months later, I was a first-year student in the very class that she had had me guest lecturing in for the previous five years. And I was aware that the student feedback from the lecture that I'd done, the students were saying that I was given, had given the best lectures of any in the series. So I was in her class. Well, you have a significant uh, hurdle. The point is that I was sitting in her class for the first time as a a student instead of a guest lecturer. And I knew that at some point in this particular lecture series was going to be the lecture that I used to give. Yeah. And I was interested to see (laughs) who she was going to get in my place to deliver that particular lecture. And two weeks before the lecture was due, she came to me and she said, oh, Gary, <laughs> First would, you, year mind, student, would you mind doing the lecture as usual? And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. What did you charge? I didn't charge him nothing. I was a student. Oh, my goodness. I'm no, not, you no, ought no, to no, have charged. You, you, no, no, you've you got to be careful about ethics when you're an academic. And by ethics you and mean? And ethics I mean it would have been improper for me as a student in that class to charge her for the lecture. No, the money wasn't, I mean, the money was shit money anyway. Still is, you know, 30 bucks an hour, something like that. I mean, that's pathetic. I don't even get out of bed in the morning for that these days. 
just like Linda Evangelista, you are indeed. The, you are the supermodel. I'm glad you got the reference. Uh, you 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 are, as we have said, the supermodel of Black history. Or no, that's class, mate. That's oh, what you call class. Well, you know, class. we want to talk about class. That's a different sort of we normally talk about, but that's class. So we've learnt here on Knackers and the Vag purported post-election review. Ugh. Look, fuck. Who oh, cares? that's right, the election. Yeah, fuck, who cares? Um, a little more of the life of Gary Foley. Hey, one day maybe he'll allow somebody to write his biography, but it probably won't be me. Um, I'm here it'll for be, him purely to torture. It'll be a posthumous publication. Oh, folks. Jesus. I'll probably die before you. No. Now, people like us... We'll live on, mate. It's our revenge. Our survival is our revenge. Yes, but I'm very impressed. That's my motto. I'm very impressed by uh, you. You play the long game with vengeance, like you play such a long game that you have a conversation with a historian. She says something prideful and snobby about how you were not entitled to that opinion because you had not become a scholar. So what do you do? Honor, go and, go uh, and become uh, uh, something that I hate the yeah, most, academic historian. Yeah, like <laughs> uh, I guess you got a first first and did honours in your um Absolutely. Bachelor. First class honours, folks. Uh, yeah, well, you have to, to then go on to do a PhD, for which I presume you were afforded a scholarship for your, your genius. No, absolutely not. I, no, you didn't get a scholarship. I had no subsidy whatsoever. I wasn't eligible for AB study, the Aboriginal sort of version of whatever. Okay, so you didn't get a scholarship. So no, this is this – is, I, I did it – I was told by these academics who were teaching me, they said, oh – Gary, you could easily uh, apply for credit. You know, you don't have to do all the work. I said, no, I don't want. I don't want no concessions. I want to do the work. When yes. I when I complete my PhD, I want people to know that I did the hard yards. None of this Mickey Mouse honorary yes. shit. None of this credits for life experience and all this shit you offer me. So, so see, I don't want no concessions. Your vengeance is complete. I was angry, that's all. Your vengeance <laughs> is complete and can occur over decades, which is something that, uh, you know. I'm not into ven- uh, revenge, though, I think. Or, or I, I don't gr- think, gr- I Grudge. You're grudge, right? I don't think I'm even grudgeful. All right, you're not grudgeful. You just like to prove people wrong. And if that takes... I know, I like to prove me right. Let's just get to the end of this marvellous story. And if that takes getting a first first in the Bachelor of Arts, which is not, you know, a breeze at Melbourne University, enduring the cross-disciplinary cassoulet, that is cultural studies, which I believe you did, you know, (laughs) being forced to read fucking Foucault and then producing a doctoral thesis, you know, 100,000 quite readable words on a topic that had never been seriously broached in any long form or scholarly way, truly original research, truly original knowledge, for which you were, and this was no way token, ordered the highest honour for a doctoral thesis, the University Medal, just because someone said you weren't a proper historian. I think that that attitude, which is not a grudge, which is not vengeful, 
that is the one that one must take across the decades if one wishes to significantly nudge the course of human history. In all right, I'll, I'll accept all of that. But let me also say that one of the really great experiences of my life was going to Melbourne Uni. Suddenly I found myself in a classroom surrounded by these people who were younger, young enough to be my grandchildren. And one of the great experiences I had there was uh, meeting some really sharp uh, young minds who did influence the way in which I thought. Met enough of them to set up, Tony Birch and I set up a group called Sledger, the Students for Land Justice and Reconciliation. They chose the name. I said, you know, you, if you're interested in uh, effect and change, do something. And and so we did. And this group, a young group of people, they, among them are some of the um, young teachers that I said that Tony and I taught at Melbourne. At the time I was sort of doing guest lectures and I was also uh, tutoring at the same time yeah. as I was I, Look, I, I think a lot of people and, uh, and, But who... I think it's important that people know that it wasn't just me expanding my mind. There were a lot of people around me who helped me develop further than I had been in the past. Oh, my heavens, you know? doing a Bachelor of Arts for me and I went, you know, like, straight from school, it wasn't even a case of mind expansion. Uh, it was a case of like mind detonation, uh, particularly at 18 or 19. Now, I did uh, the thing that so few people would uh, could afford to do and those who would, wouldn't bother. I did a non-vocational degree that I knew would be useless, you know, in the human sciences. And it did nothing for my future employment chances, but it with that intellectual framework that you only get from a real exploration of truly good human sciences, that left me with something very good. I do not admire academia, particularly that of the present. Don't oh, think mm. probably like Gary doesn't think. If you Want to fucking write a history? Write a fucking history. Keith fucking Windshuttle alleges to have. Oh, I mean, <laughs> obviously Keith Windshuttle is a historian because if you say otherwise, uh, he will sue you for defamation. But One of the great know, things about Keith Windshuttle in my archive, which I show my students all the time, just remind, is a letter. Could Keith, you, could you Keith kindly, kindly remind us yeah. who Keith Windshuttle is? Keith Windshuttle is... And remember, he is very, very litigious, very Keith, litigious. Keith Winshuttle is somebody who wrote a book called Fabrication of Aboriginal History. Um, he's the person who is credited with uh, triggering the um, the history wars, culture wars that it evolved or, into. Or at least being a, uh, a key figure. He did this at he, the same time as being a, an influential along with ABC, Blaney, a yeah, member yeah. of the uh, a, uh, yeah. ABC board. He was appointed to the board of the ABC by Abbott or somebody, wasn't he? Anyway, let me finish about him. One of the great things I've got in my archive at Victoria University is a letter that Keith Rinsuttle wrote in 1970. 72, and it was on the occasion of the Gwala Daraniki, the Aboriginal traditional owners of Darwin, in 1972 or three, 
They staged a demonstration when Princess Margaret visited the Northern Territory. And this was the first time that um, a group of Northern Territory Aboriginal people had staged a protest similar to those that were being held at the time in in the south of Australia. And all the rednecks in the Northern Territory used to always say, oh, our abos up here, they'd never carry on like those half-caste people down south. They're not like them. And so they got a shock when the Gwala Daraniki staged this demo and blockaded the main street of Darwin during the visit of Princess Margaret. And so in my archive is a letter that was written to the Gwala Daraniki Association and it reads, Dear Gwala Daraniki, I saw your demonstration against Princess Margaret. It was a magnificent uh, effort. I strongly support and believe in you, and here's a contribution towards your struggle. Signed, Keith Windshuttle. And you know where I got that letter from? Whom? From um, ASIO Archives. Oh, fantastic. Um, because it was wonderful, you know, finally especially, you're, finally especially you're in the off, context of what he ultimately turned into. Finally, you're of the age where you're able to access records of your early surveillance. Were there any nice pictures that you could share with family in there? You do take a good picture, I, I hope so. I say to my students when I show them my ASIO surveillance photographs that were taken without, I didn't know it at the time, I didn't know until I saw these photographs 30 years later, I show them to my students and I say, listen, there's a lesson for you young people in this. If you want to be a political activist in Asia, you should be aware that Asia is going to monitor you. And if they're going to monitor you, you've got to be careful. You've got to think sartorially. You've got to think to yourself, okay, in 30 years' time, I'm going to be showing my students photographs of my Asia file, so I've got to make sure I don't look like the complete dag that I do in my archive. Dal, I know you don't like talking about this surveillance stuff, but they're fucked now. They've got a lot more power and technology than they had in my day. Back in my day, they were a fairly amateurish, piss-weak, puny outfit. Today, they're dangerous. Well, you know, and also omniscient. It's a surveillance civilization. I know that I've never been able to excite you about the particular struggle that has preoccupied me for some time, which is the freedom of Julian Assange and uh, the elevation of... I don't get excited, but I'm I'm very conscious and, and yeah. Wiki, listen very closely yeah. to what you say. The elevation... I'm a supporter. We would love to have you as a more vocal supporter, but we understand that you are busy. Um, it would be nice if you wrote to the Queen and asked her if she would release him from her prison. Um, I've got, got a terrible feeling she won't take much notice, but I am happy to state right now to anyone and everyone, uh, I believe that what's being done to him is absolutely criminal, you know, and and given what, Others have done, like the President of the United States. He has States, done nothing. Prime he has Minister done nothing but extraordinary good. He is a, a heroic force of information. WikiLeaks did significantly shift our perceptions of the world. There is no doubt about that in my mind. Uh, you know, the fucking bullshit propaganda machine that calls Julian Assange this and that. Everyone believes it, just like everyone believes that Ukraine is a lovely country full of grandmothers who grow sunflowers and make lovely 
you know, rustic Molotov cocktails because they have to. No Nazis in Ukraine, NATO, lovely mob. Yes, let's just hear one side of every story and let it be read by idiots and let it be written by press secretaries. I mean, that's all fucking political journalism is. But one must remember, one must always remember, they are not even lying to you. They believe the lies. They are, I don't like Noam Chomsky much, but I do like his description of journalism as stenography. It's just a copy of what the state says. They're all pre-approved opinions. The shit that then becomes truth about Julian Assange, I can't believe. Here's an example. You know how there was a recent, or you know, about a year ago, recent photograph of Pamela Anderson. She took a selfie with Julian, right? Uh, I didn't know that, but go on. Uh, Pamela's turned out to be quite an interesting lady. Well, indeed, I think so. She's had a political awakening. I guess it might have come through her veganism or something like that. It was widely known by anyone who had, and I'm fucking hardly in a circle, that she visited the Ecuadorian embassy a lot. Julian doesn't kiss and tell, but it it was just widely assumed that, you know, he was getting a surf. May or may not have been true, but this was the rumour. Now, both of the... uh, Well, that was inevitable, but go on. Yes, but this was just sort of spoken about for quite a few years among people who'd been to the embassy, like your mate, Philip Adams. Oh, do listen to Gary talking to Philip. It's probably online, right? It's a great conversation. You and Indeed you, it is. You and Philip Adams, two cranks. But that that was only because I wouldn't let him get a word in edgewise. I tried to stop him from getting a word yeah, in edgewise. But Phil, go on. Phil does, Phil does shut up if he knows Stick this. on Julian Assange. Yeah. Um, you know, like Phil knew. It was like an open secret among supporters that Julian and Pamela spent a lot of time together in the embassy and that Lady Gaga had gone there more than once, you know. I mean, there were quite a few celebrity visitors, but, I mean, Gaga and Pam Pam, I mean, fucking. That's an indication of his celebrity status as well, isn't it? Also the fact that he's kind of like quite an interesting bloke and he's long had the tendency, like yourself, to be a teacher. Anyhow, widely known. Now, both Lisa Miller, well, Lisa Miller was the ABC correspondent to London at the time. Her coverage on Assange was not in any way objective reporting, nor was it reporting. What a surprise. It was bullshit. And when this photograph came out after, you know, like she would not talk, for example, to Assange supporters around the embassy to, I don't know, maybe get intelligence for her news reports. She was once saved by uh, one of them from a a passing van. She didn't even say thank you. According, uh, this is a first-hand report I have. So, like, she was not involved with the story. She was very vehement in her opinions that this man was an evil rapist who had done wrong, wrong, wrong. But her information about him was so scant that on the day that Pamela released the photograph of Julian, I saw Lisa Miller tweet 
we're all saying in the office that this can't possibly be real. Oh, my God. She fucking signed into the embassy that many times. Anyway, that's it. So the reason that I mentioned WikiLeaks was related to your claims, uh, well, your not claims, your, your, your truths about the nature of surveillance. One of the uh, later releases by WikiLeaks was Vault 7. Vault 7 contains curated information as every WikiLeaks release does. They don't just dump shit. It's curated. Fuck me. If you go through that resource, the number of ways one can be surveilled quite legally is actually beyond the grasp of human consciousness. Yeah, there's no no doubt about that. But also in terms of Julian, the, I mean, it's clearly obvious that the reason they're coming down in on him like a ton of bricks is because of what's at stake. And, you know, we're talking about major American surveillance industry, the American government. I mean, you know, he's... <laughs> Here on... Uh, what's he's up the- against... A pretty powerful mob, and that's yeah. that would be the thing of greatest concern to me, I think, because he's up against a tough battle. He's up against everybody. Uh, here on Next in the Vag, our guest, our raison d'etre, one of the most tolerable living humans on this continent, Gary Foley, is with us. And this has not been much to do with the election at all. Um, but it has oh, the election. But it has been, as ever, a curious and somewhat masochistic pleasure. And self-indulgent on both sides. Yes, but that's because we justify. That's because we're us. We, we love ourselves sick. I mean, somebody has to. It's always lovely to talk to you. You don't mean that. I actually, that's the only thing I've meant so far. <laughs> um, all right, so discount everything that he said. And that's it, folks. Bye. See ya. You've been listening to Knackers and the Vag. <laughs>